Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, the place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. Today, we're excited to have Jay Scott join us on the show. Jay is an entrepreneur, investor, and the co-host of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. He's also the author of four books on real estate investing, including the book on estimating rehab costs and the book on flipping houses. Kenji and I asked Jay to be on our show because we really wanted to give our listeners who are buying cash flowing rentals and rehabbing them a framework for estimating the rehab costs. So what you'll see in this interview is that we spend a lot of our time asking Jay the questions we know our students, readers, and listeners have on how to best estimate rehab costs and how to successfully run a rehab project, especially if you're doing so long distance. He also shares some really great insights on the mindset you need for success. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Rich Doc, Poor Doc. Today, we are so excited to have Jay Scott, author of multiple books. The main one we're going to be discussing today is the book on estimating rehab costs. And Jay, thank you for joining us. Really, really happy to have you here. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. So Jay, um, just kind of getting to know you and helping our listeners understand, you know, where you started and your journey, would you mind starting to tell us how you got interested in real estate? Because I know that's not how you started out. Yeah, absolutely. So I started out, actually, I am an engineer by education and training. Uh, spent about 15 years in the tech industry and uh, met my wife back in 2006. We worked together at eBay. And in 2008, we decided to get married. And at that time, she was literally traveling three and a half weeks a month. I was traveling two weeks a month. We were both working 80 to 100 hour weeks. We were, we were the typical Silicon Valley type, like high achieving single young people. And so 2008, we decided to get married and we realized that we wanted to start a family. We were getting older, so we, we were going to have kids pretty quickly. Uh, and we knew that that lifestyle, the whole long hours, traveling a lot, just wasn't conducive to starting a family and, and growing a family. So I don't remember which of us said it, but after the proposal, one of us said, so what are we going to do? And within about five minutes, we both agreed that the right thing to do was to quit our jobs um, and to focus on something that would give us more flexibility to raise our family and focus on our family. A lot of people refer to it as a lifestyle business, kind of where you put your, your, your family and your, your lifestyle before, you, uh, before your work. But we had no idea what we were going to do. So we were on the West Coast at the time. Both of our families were on the East Coast. So we said, let's move back to the East Coast and we'll figure out what to do. And so this was spring of 2008. We were getting married in August 2008, and so we said, we're going to take the summer off. We're just going to kind of sit back and, and just decide, are we going to buy a franchise? Are we going to start a business? What are we going to do? So uh, summer of 2008 comes around. We're in our basement watching TV. Um, my wife turns on HGTV, and there's a flip show on. And she said, well, you know, while we're trying to figure out what we want to do and waiting for the wedding to come up, why don't we flip a house? And I am... I'm probably the least handy person you'll ever meet. My wife likes to joke that I'm probably the only electrical engineer on the planet that can't change a light bulb. But I said, okay. I mean, this was the woman that was going to marry me. So I certainly wasn't going to say no to her before the wedding. I'm not that stupid. So we started researching how to flip houses and hopped online and grabbed a couple of books and started reading and talking to other people. And this was 2008. We were living in Atlanta. It was probably one of the hardest hit areas in the country after the 2008 downturn. 
just absolutely decimated. Prices were 40, 50% below market. There were no other investors out there. They had all either gone out of business or gone into hiding. And so luckily, we didn't know how bad the market was because if we had, if we, if we knew more than we did, uh, we probably wouldn't have gotten started. But we just decided to jump in. We looked at houses for a few months. We must have looked at about 100 houses. We ultimately said, whatever the next house we look at, we're just going to buy. Because we knew at that point, we were just analysis paralysis. We were looking at house after house. We we're probably seeing some good deals, but we we're too scared to just make that jump and do something. So my wife, and I'm taking credit for this, but actually it's all her. She said, next house we find, we're going to buy. If we lose a little bit of money, that's okay. We'll at least learn and we'll have fun. And to her, this was fun. And so I said, okay, next house we're going to buy. Turns out the next house we saw was probably one of the worst potential deals out there, but we said it, (laughs) so we bought that house. And luckily, the week we found that house, we found two others. So we put three houses under contract all in the same week. No idea what we were doing. We closed on that first house literally the day we got married, August 8th, 2008. Uh, We closed on the next two over the next couple weeks. And now suddenly we went from knowing nothing about real estate to flipping three houses. Luckily, we bought the second and third houses because if we had just bought that first one, we probably never would have done a second deal. We made every mistake in the book. We overpaid for the house. We underestimated the repair costs. We underestimated the time it was going to take to repair it. We underestimated the time it was going to take to sell. We underestimated the, the holding costs. And then by the time we got ready to sell it, values had dropped. So we underestimated or overestimated the, the resale value. So literally made every mistake in the book. We ended up lease optioning that house for two and a half years. A couple came in and um, they paid us. They made monthly payments and they had the option to purchase it at some point. Two and a half years later, they had made every payment. Everything was great. They pack up and leave in the middle of the night. <sighs> we don't realize this until we get a call from the police saying that it looks like there was a break-in in one of our houses. So house had been broken into, basically destroyed. We realized the tenants had left, who knows, a week earlier, two weeks earlier, we still don't know. But now at this point, we had done a lot of rehab. So we came in, we did a second renovation, we put it back on the market. All said and done, that first project took us about three years, but we made about $1,000. So it was a successful deal. But in that time, in that three years, we had done about 50 more deals. And so we knew what we we're doing at that point. And, and at some point in that first three years, we realized, okay, I guess this is going to be that lifestyle business that we were trying to figure out. We never sat down and said, okay, we're house flippers now. We never said, let's do the real estate thing. It just sort of happened. And here we are 12 years later, and we still make real estate a, a primary part of our business and income stream. Wow. wow. Take me back, you know, leaving your jobs, because I think that's a, that's a really big step. And I think it would entail a lot of fear you know, our show, a lot of it, it's about mindset and having, you know, a good mindset to overcome those types of fears and controlling your emotions. Talk us through kind of what you guys were feeling and, and how you were able to overcome kind of some of these ups and downs, especially when you started with that first flip. I mean, like, you know, it sounded like a lot of ups and downs and you said that, okay, it was good. You did your second and third. I would love to kind of know kind of what, you know, what you were kind of going feeling through that and how you guys worked together and worked through all that. So, In retrospect, and this was something I, it took me a couple years to realize now that I've talked to literally thousands of other investors who some are doing well, some are struggling, but I hear a common theme amongst a lot of the investors who are struggling these days that they and their spouse aren't on the same page. One of them might be a bigger risk taker. One of them might be more entrepreneurial. One of them might be 
um, more open to doing a, a side investment. And then the other partner might be less entrepreneurial and less risk-taking and more conservative and not want to do side jobs. And when you have a couple like that that don't agree on kind of the, the, the basics of, of how they're going to structure their business or their investing, that can put a big strain on a relationship. I mean, I'm not going to claim to be an expert. I mean, I'm, there's plenty of data out there that supports the fact that the, the biggest stress on, on most relationships is money. Mm-hmm. And that's what investing is. It's, it's money. And when, when the spouses or partners can't agree on how to spend that money and how to invest that money and where to put that money and how risk or risk averse you should be with that money, that puts a lot of strain on the relationship. I was very lucky that my wife and I were on the same page from day one. Literally, one of us, and again, I don't remember who, said, let's quit our jobs and figure it out. And the other one said, great, let's do it. That was a five-minute conversation. Literally, I mean, she was an executive at eBay. She was Meg Whitman's right-hand woman, flew around the, the world on the private jet. I was pretty senior at Microsoft. And so we had, these were our careers, and we were making good money. And I had never thought about doing something else. But at the time that this was brought up, it, it really was a five-minute discussion. Let's just throw it all away because this is what's right for our family. Yeah, so it, it, Yeah. And so in retrospect, the reason that it was an easy discussion is because my wife and I were on the same page. We have very similar approaches to things. I mean, we're different in some ways. She's tremendously frugal. I'm less frugal. I'm very risk-averse and conservative. She's more risk-taking. But we both agreed on the main points, which was family first, and we're going to figure out how to make this work. And if we struggle, that's okay because we're going to struggle together. I know so many people, and I hate to be stereotypical, but a lot of times it's the guys who have this idea that I have to be the provider and I can't take big risks because if I lose money, I'm putting my family at risk. And my wife and I were always very much on the same page that, you know, it's okay to take these risks. And if something bad happens, we'll figure it out and we'll get through it together. And so for us, it wasn't that scary. In retrospect, it probably should have been scarier. But for us, it really, it wasn't that scary. And at the time, it didn't seem like a huge risk because we were both on the same page. The other thing I hear is that you were willing to make mistakes and you almost saw mistakes as inevitable part of the process, but you also knew that you too could work through it together. A lot of people are so scared of the mistakes, they don't take action. And I think that's part of what probably allowed you to take the action is you knew there were going to be hard times, but you were willing to accept that and move forward anyway. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people, there there are a lot of people out there that flip houses. There are a lot of people out there that have written books. There are a lot of people out there that speak and do all the same things I do. And people often wonder, well, how come you got popular for flipping houses and nobody else did? Honestly, the reason I think I got popular was because in 2008, before we started, I started a blog called 123 Flip. Um, And my goal for that blog was essentially to document our journey into real estate. I didn't expect that it would take us where it did, but I figured I'm going to document this and it's also going to be a way to hold myself accountable. If I'm going to say I'm going to go out there and flip a house, well, this is going to force me to actually do it and not give up. It's also going to give me an opportunity to help other people learn. I've always been a big fan of teaching and it's going to give me an opportunity to really capture my successes, my mistakes, learn from them if we're going to do more of these because again, we bought three at once at the beginning. And so I started this blog and Going back and reading the blog, um, literally every day I would post, uh, I'd write a post, I'd post pictures or videos of the flip. And going back and reading it, what I realized is most of what I talk about, at least in the first year or two on that blog, are the mistakes we made. 
And there were a lot of mistakes. I remember reading a lot of other people's stuff at the time and people were talking about, I made all this money and look at the pretty pictures and look at all the great things I'm doing and look at this great deal I bought. And everybody was talking about, it was, again, it was the days of flipping houses on HGTV where it was lots of money and everything was easy and everything worked out in the end. And I'm writing this blog where every day I'm talking about all the struggles of finding contractors and, and finding cheap materials and getting people to show up and not overpaying for things and dealing with surprise issues. And I was never scared to write about those things and to be vulnerable because I didn't have an ego in real estate. Again, I knew nothing. So I didn't have anything to prove. And so I know that I, I gained a lot of followers in those first couple of years. We, we had something like 100,000 followers of the blog that had signed up for my newsletter. And the feedback I kept getting was, you're willing to put your mistakes out there. You're willing to admit your mistakes and learn from them. And to me, that was always natural. But in retrospect, I think that's a, a big part of why my wife and I have been successful is because we're not scared to fail. We have little kids. And I know a lot of times people sit around their kitchen table at night eating dinner talking about, tell me about your successes of the day. We like to talk about our failures. Mm -hmm. We like to talk about all the things that went wrong because in my opinion, it's the failures that force us to grow. And if we can learn from our mistakes, we're going to become better at whatever it is we're doing. And so many people are terrified to, to make mistakes and to talk about their failures. It's a badge of honor. So anybody out there that's listening, that's scared to jump in, don't be scared because if you get it right the first time, you're not going to learn. It's better to make the mistakes because that's how we learn. We talk about uh, in this business that there are a lot of people who, who got into to real estate in the last few years and everybody's making money. I mean, the market's just gone up for the last five, six, seven years. It's hard to lose money. Well, let me tell you something. When the market turns and things get more difficult, these are the people that are going to struggle because they've never made mistakes. They've never had to deal with trials and tribulations and they've never had to make hard decisions and be put in a situation where they're losing money and they have to decide, do I move on or do I keep pushing through? And when you've been through those difficult times, it makes it so much easier when you're struggling. And so big piece of advice for anybody out there that's listening, embrace your mistakes. Don't be scared to make them. Learn from them. Talk about them. Because when you talk about them, you're a lot less apt to try and forget about them or, or not acknowledge them. Tell right, and not learn from them, right? Yeah. If, you, if you're talking about it, if you're authentic about you know, the mistakes you've made, then you're also willing to look at them deeply and then analyze them and learn from them and be able to be better going forward, right? Rather than sweeping them under the rug. Absolutely. We have done 400 and some flips. We've done over a thousand deals in general. My wife and I are selling our personal residence and we put it on the market two weeks ago. We had uh, six offers in the first 24 hours. Here we are two weeks later and the house is not under contract because we made mistakes. We screwed up. And a lot of people look at us after a thousand and some deals. My wife's a broker. I'm a licensed agent. We've sold hundreds and hundreds of houses Like to think that we're still making mistakes. We made some big mistakes selling our personal residence two weeks ago. And I'm not scared to tell people, we screw up all the time. And hopefully the next time we go to sell our personal residence, we don't make the same mistakes we made this time. But we're constantly making mistakes. So if you're starting out, if you're new, think you're not going to make mistakes, embrace them and talk about them and acknowledge them. Yeah, I think just hearing you and thinking about physicians, one thing I think we struggle with is admitting mm -hmm. mistakes because what we're taught is you don't make mistakes. And yep. if you do make mistakes, it has life and death consequences yep. sometimes. And so we're very much, it's ingrained into us that to be very ashamed of making any sort of mistakes. So I think that makes physicians even more fearful to, 
to make mistakes and then to admit them, even if it's in a different line of work because it's so ingrained in our identity. So I think this is a really great learning point that, you know, as a real estate investor, you separate it from being a physician and and be able to realize that you will make mistakes and that's okay. And I think it's very much in line with what Sarah Blakely says, who's, you know, the founder of Spanx, is her family always celebrated the mistakes because it meant you were trying something new. Because you weren't making mistakes if you were just doing what was safe and nothing new. It's only when you went out of your comfort zone that you were really going to make those mistakes and to celebrate them. Yeah. And for a lot of us in our corporate jobs or our careers, um, and, and same with physicians, you make mistakes, but you made those mistakes back in school. You made those mistakes before you ever got out into the real world. In real estate, you're not making any fewer or more mistakes than you made as training physicians. You're just making them in the real world as opposed to going to school, making them all before you get out in the real world and then being perfect at it. So we just have to to recognize that first flip we do or the 10th flip or the 100th flip is kind of like our school. Every deal that we do, we're still in school. I've done, again, 400 and some flips, thousand some deals. Every deal I do, I'm still learning and I'm still in school. I don't, I don't get a degree and say, now I'm really good at this. And, and so we have to look at it not as you learn, you graduate, and then you never make a mistake. It's that you're constantly learning. You're constantly in school. Every house, every deal is its own class. And hopefully when you get through that class, you just don't make the same mistakes again. Nice. Awesome. Can you talk us through your uh, decision to write a book? And you know, we have your, your books here. So actually, I, I don't even know which one was the first one, the book on flipping houses or the book on estimating rehab costs. Which one of these was first and like, why a book? You know, and where did the idea come from? Was it just one day you guys said, hey, let's write a book? So my blog got popular. I am tremendously introverted. People that meet me, they don't realize it until I'm like in one-on-one situations, but I'm really introverted. It's hard for me to hold conversations or have lunches with people, but I was getting literally like dozens of requests a week. Hey, can I take you to lunch and pick your brain? Hey, can we do a phone call? Hey, can whatever. And I couldn't deal with that because again, I'm just really introverted. I'm not good on the phone. I don't do well like going to lunch with with random people. And so I said to my wife, I I feel like a, a minor celebrity in this tiny little industry and it's really hard for me. And she said, well, like, what are people asking you? I'm like, people ask me the same questions over and over. How do you get started? and just all the basics. And she said, well, you've been writing about that on the blog for a couple of years now. And if they're asking the same questions over and over, why don't you just write a book and give your book away or tell people go buy the book? So that way, they're not going to ask you to, to get on the phone or to have lunch. And if they have more questions after they bought your book, well, at least you have $20 from them and it's worth answering a question or two. And I thought, that's actually a really smart idea. So I sat down, I started writing the book on flipping houses, and it took about a year and a half And when I was done with the book, I ended up having a 600-page book. And what I realized is one of the chapters, and it was the chapter on estimating rehab costs. So the book is laid out basically as a step-by-step book. It's 20 chapters. Each chapter is the next step in the process of doing your first flip. Chapter, and I don't remember what, it's like chapter 13 or something, is estimating rehab costs. How do you estimate costs? That chapter was about 250 or 300 pages. So I said, nah, I'm not going to have a 600-page book. I'm going to break that one chapter out into a separate book. So that became the book on estimating rehab costs. I released both books on the same day back in 2013. I was part of a community called Bigger Pockets. A good friend of mine, Josh Dorkin, was the founder of Bigger Pockets, and, and he and I were friends. And I wasn't looking to make money on a book. I wasn't really looking to get popular writing a book. I just wanted to get it out there so people would stop asking me questions. 
So I said to him, I said, hey, you've got a community. It's got a couple hundred thousand people back then. Now it has like two and a half million people. And I said, hey, why don't you sell this book or give this book to your community? And, and he said, eh, I'm not sure I want to do that. I said, think about it. You, you give this book away or you sell this book. I'll write a couple more. We'll get other people to write more. You can start a publishing company. I said, jokingly, here we are seven years later, Bigger Pockets is the largest real estate publishing company on the planet. But he basically said, okay, I'll take your books. He started selling them on the website. Before we knew it, I had sold a couple hundred thousand copies. And, and somehow people were looking at me as the expert on flipping houses and estimating rehab costs. When again, there are lots of people like me out there that are doing just as many deals that are just as successful, but somehow I'm here talking about it. Very awesome. cool story. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome how you just took action. And yeah, we've uh, read like Amanda Han and uh, Matthew McFarland's book yep. and had them also on our podcast. So yeah, a lot of really good content on Bigger yeah. Pocket. Yeah, absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Caliber Home Loans. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. Now, we've been working with Dan and his team for over five years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close a deal. Now, I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or a vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at semiretiredmd at caliberhomeloans.com to get a free consultation. Also wanted to give a shout out to Joe Whitesell of Northwest Commercial Lending for being a sponsor of the show. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to get a loan for a commercial property for less than a million dollars, good luck. Most commercial loan brokers don't deal in small loans. And this is where Joe and his team shine. They help investors find a commercial loan no matter the size. And they actually love working with new investors and helping them grow their portfolios. So the next time you're in the market for a commercial loan, be sure to reach out to Joe and his team by emailing them at semiretiredmd at nwclending.com. Now back to the show. So let's transition a little bit. I'd really like to talk to you about some of the questions we get from our listeners and our students in our class. So a lot of them are, you know, just starting out. They're high-income professionals, physicians who want to get another source of income to supplement what they do day-to-day at their jobs, right, for that security. And so they're looking at properties. It's going to be their first purchase. Let's say it's a duplex. And they're looking online for it. They're looking at MLS. And maybe they see some pictures on the outside and they're plugging it all into the cash and cash calculator, which, you know, being very diligent about getting accurate numbers for everything, you know, talking to their insurance broker and getting that number and, you know, looking up property taxes with the mill rate. Well, then they get to the, um, you know, repairs and renovations. And they're like, all I have is these pictures of the outside. And a lot of them are out of state. Right. Oh yeah. Most of our investors, they're out of state. You know, all I have is these pictures on the outside, maybe a couple really crappy kitchen pictures. Like, how do I even start to approach coming up with an accurate number for my cash on cash calculator? First, I'm going to start with the bad news. There's nothing I'm going to say here today to anybody that you're going to walk away from this podcast and say, okay, now I can come up with an accurate number for the rehab that I'm looking at the pictures for. That said, let's talk about some strategies. So estimating rehab costs, and, and uh, your audience is, is perfect as physicians. 
I'm sure most of your audience is used to checklists and following procedures mm-hmm. and step-by-step and, and thinking through things logically. And that's really what estimating cost is. There, there's a framework for it. And a lot of people think that, okay, well, I live, so right now I live uh, in Florida. And so people say, okay, so what are things cost in Florida? What are rehab costs in Florida? And I can't answer that question. Keep in mind that every time you do a rehab, there are going to be so many factors that play into the, the cost of that rehab that it's impossible to give a per square foot number or an area number. So just some things to think about. Let's say I do, um, I rehab in multiple states, different rehabs. There are going to be different costs for materials in different states. So typically ports are in the Southeast and uh, the Northwest. So materials tend to be cheaper in the Southeast and the Northwest. You're going to pay more for materials in the Northeast and in the Midwest and in Southern California than you will in Atlanta or Florida because these are where materials come into the port. So there's less transportation costs. So people don't think about that. But material costs have a non-trivial difference between locations. Number two, you're going to have different contractor costs. And that's going to be based on local economies. That's going to be based on state regulation or maybe even county regulation. If you go flip houses in California, there are a lot higher insurance costs in California than there are in, let's say, Atlanta. Um, so contractors in California to cover, assuming they're licensed and insured, and we can talk about that as a separate mm-hmm. item, but assuming they're insured, you're going to pay a whole lot more for an insured contractor in California than you are in Atlanta because insurance costs are tremendously more. Now, some contractors aren't insured. Some aren't licensed. Some will work under the table for cash. Some will not uh, take a 1099 at the end of the year. So you're at risk if you don't pay them like through a 1099, you're at risk because they're not paying taxes. But some people are willing to take those risks. So your labor costs are going to be significantly less if somebody is not licensed and insured than if you hire a licensed and insured contractor. Likewise, if you hire a contractor that's not licensed and insured, but they get hurt, your exposure, your risk is a lot higher. Um, I imagine most of your, your listeners would never think to work without malpractice insurance. I'm not going to put a contractor on a ladder or on a roof or anywhere in my house um, without workers' comp insurance. But there are plenty of people in my position that will hire contractors that don't have insurance. Um, then there are things like there are different types of contractors. There's the handyman, there's the general contractor, and there's everything in between. So are you hiring the general contractor who's going to bring in all the subcontractor? He's, he's going to bring in the electrician and the plumber and the HVAC guy and the painter and the carpenter and the roofer and all these other contractors. He's going to manage the schedule. He's going to manage the budget. And at the end of the day, you're going to pay one bill. Well, if you do that, you're going to be paying a good 15 or 20% overhead to that general contractor. Now, let's say you want to hire the electrician and the plumber and the carpenter and the HVAC person yourself, manage them yourself, negotiate the contracts yourself. Well, now you're saving 15 to 20% of that overhead that you'd be paying to a general contractor. But it's going to take more of your time and, and more of your effort. You're going to have to be more knowledgeable. All of these things factor into the cost of doing a renovation. Then there are things just like, if I'm going to replace a roof in Florida versus Wisconsin, the codes are different. Wisconsin has codes that require roofs to withstand 10 inches of of snow on the roof. Florida, we don't have to worry about that. But Florida, we have to have certain wind mitigation codes so that hurricanes don't blow your roof off. Then there's the different types of materials. I'll pay $40,000 for a tile roof in Florida. That same roof in Wisconsin that's just asphalt shingles might be $6,000. So materials play a big cost. Time of year. So again, uh, let's use the, we, we we used to do a lot in Wisconsin. 
And trying to find contractors in the summer in Wisconsin was nearly impossible because everybody wanted to do renovations before the snow came. Come winter, when there's a foot of snow on the ground, well, it's easy to find cheap contractors because none of them have anything to do. So if we waited till the winter to do our renovations, they'd be a whole lot cheaper than if we did them in the summer. So lots and lots of things play into the cost of a renovation. Even something as simple as what's the size of the house? If I have a three-bedroom, two-bath house that's 1,000 square feet, and then I have another three-bedroom, two-bath house that's 3,000 square feet, which one's going to cost more to renovate? Well, the larger one's going to cost more because there's more space, but it's going to cost less per square foot because most of that space is empty. Doesn't cost anything to paint a, a large living room. It's going to take a little bit more paint, so it's going to be more money. But per square foot, it's going to be less because all it is is paint and carpet. So all of these things factor in. So if anybody tells you that they can estimate without looking at the property, without knowing the area cost, without knowing what kind of contractors you're using, without knowing what kind of materials you're using, they're lying to you. It's a hard, it, it's hard. Then again, luckily your listeners are used to doing a hard job and they're used to being told, hey, there's no shortcut. You're going to have to learn this. And that's really what estimating costs is. It's a process. It's a framework. The way I've laid it out in the book, and this is the way I still do all of my estimates now, I lay it out as there's interior and exterior components of the rehab. So mm-hmm. exterior, obviously things like painting and exterior painting and the roof and sidewalks and landscaping and those sorts of things. Interiors, all the interior stuff, electrical, plumbing, HVAC, painting, carpentry, cabinets, countertops, those sorts of things. But I break it down into there are 25 major components. And those components are everything from foundation to cabinets, to plumbing, to electrical, to roofing, all the big things that go into a renovation in your house. And then within each of those components, there are literally dozens or hundreds of subcomponents. So for um, plumbing, um, there's everything from you can do a complete repipe or replumb of your house. You can replace all the plumbing lines in your house. That's obviously the largest thing you're going to do. But a lot of times when we do a renovation, it's a lot smaller in scope. Um, We might replace a toilet. We might replace a sink. We might replace a faucet. We might replace a water heater. There are all sorts of different things we can do. So the key to being able to estimate a, a renovation is understanding one, these major 25 components, and then have a reasonable understanding of all these potential subcomponents underneath. So that as you walk through a house, you can say, okay, I'm going to start with the plumbing. And with the plumbing, you're going to go, you're going to turn on every faucet, you're going to flush every toilet. You're going to look at the faucets and the sinks and the toilets, and you're going to say, these things don't work, so they have to be replaced. And then other things you're going to say, these things work, but they're outdated or they don't look good, or we're going to remodel the whole bathroom, so we're going to replace them. And then there are going to be things like the water heater, where you're going to have to learn how to inspect a water heater and say, okay, based on the serial number, this is how old the water heater is. I know a water heater lasts on average eight to 10 years. This one's 12 years old, so I have to replace it. And so there are lots of things to learn. Becoming good at estimating rehab costs involve a number of different skills. One, you have to be good at design because you need to decide, is this bathroom outdated? Is somebody going to buy a house with this bathroom compared to the other houses on the market that people are buying, or am I going to have to renovate the bathroom? So part of it is design. You can hire somebody that can do that for you. Next piece is inspection. Being able to walk through a house and identify the things that are not working, the things that might be working but may not be working for much longer, the things that are not up to code. Again, you can hire an inspector to come in and do that. And what I recommend is that when you're starting out, you do hire people to do these things. And then the next piece is, so now I know I need to replace a water heater. Well, how do I know how much a water heater costs? 
Well, like most things that, that go into a renovation, there's labor and there's materials. I can figure out the materials cost of a water heater because I can go to Home Depot or I can go to Lowe's and I can see how much a water heater costs. From the labor side, I can pick up the phone. I can call five plumbers and say, how much do you charge to replace a water heater? And they're going to give me a ballpark, probably somewhere in the three to $500 range, depending on your area, maybe more, maybe less. But now I have a reasonable ballpark of what it costs to replace a water heater, labor, and materials. And we can do that for every one of these line items. So typically when I walk into a house, I have my 25 components, I have my list of subcomponents, and I walk through like an inspector does, walk into a bedroom and say, okay, in this bedroom, there's carpet, carpet looks bad, I need to replace it. I'll do some measurements and I'll say, okay, I need 100 square feet of carpet for the bedroom. And then I'll say the bedroom is about 10 by 10 with eight foot high ceilings. So I have about 800 square feet of wall space. So I need 800 square feet of paint because I'm going to be painting all the walls. And then I say, okay, there's, there's an old fan that's in the bedroom, but it's falling apart. I need to replace that with a fan. So replace the fan. And I'm taking notes of everything I'm doing, line item by line item, of everything I need to do for that renovation. At the end, I have this long list of individual tasks. For each task, I can apply a labor cost and a materials cost. And again, materials cost you can get by going to Home Depot, by looking online at Amazon if you're buying your stuff online. Labor costs, you can call contractors. A lot of times, they'll give you basic prices over the phone. You ask another investor or you go online. There are plenty of places online that you can find out to replace a toilet costs about this much without the materials. And so you create your, your line item list. You fill in your labor. You fill in your materials. At the bottom, you add it up. You have your materials cost, your labor cost. You add those two together. That's your cost of, of estimating a rehab. Got it. Awesome. Now, that's a lot of work. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. And you have to understand those 25 components. You have to understand all the potential subtasks under those components. You have to be able to inspect. I mean, if you walk in and you see plumbing, knowing is this copper plumbing? Um, is this galvanized pipe? Is this CPVC? Is this something called polybutylene, which is a pipe that like if you see that was used back in the early 90s and it has to be replaced. Knowing what you're looking at to give you an idea of the condition and, and whether it's going to need to be replaced, that's a big part of it. But it's all a learning process and it's all very iterative. And even for people that are doing this brand new, there's some iterative processes that you can use to learn all of this. Awesome. So a lot of our uh, listeners are, are investing out of state. So um, you know, how would you recommend kind of thinking through doing that, kind of going through that process uh, as an out-of-state investor not actually physically going to the location, especially in the era of COVID, right? I mean, restrictions on travel, things like that. How, how would you recommend kind of doing that uh, whole process uh, remotely? Yep. So I will say if you're starting out, it's probably not realistic that somebody can hand you a stack of pictures and you can figure out how much things cost. Because again, if somebody were to hand me a stack of pictures for a property in Indiana, I might be able looking at those pictures to get a reasonable idea of what needs to be done the fact that I can't see behind the walls, I can't turn on faucets, I can't flush toilets, I can't look at the type of pipes, they probably don't have as detailed of pictures as I need, I'm not going to be able to, to figure out the cost of that renovation. So somebody starting out also probably isn't going to be. But there are things you can do. And again, luckily, a lot of this stuff can be hired out. I'm a big fan of, I don't like to go into places to buy property unless I know at least one person on the ground, or at least until I build a relationship with somebody on the ground. I found that real estate agents can be very good resources in distant markets. If you can find a really good real estate agent who is, has some extra time, is happy to work for $25 an hour or $30 an hour, 
who maybe has worked with investors or has inspected houses before, so they kind of know what they're looking for. You can provide a checklist to this, this agent. You can say, go take pictures, but also here's a checklist. So look at the roof and tell me if it's asphalt shingles, are the granules coming off? Are there bare spots? Are there shingles that are up? Are there shingles that are missing? Um, here's something you can look at to determine if there's multiple layers of shingle. Here are things you can do to determine the age of the roof by looking at other parts of the house. And so that agent walking through can say, oh, this roof doesn't need to be replaced, but it looks like there's a couple missing shingles. They can make a note there, few missing shingles. Same thing with the siding. They can walk around and they can say, okay, we have hardy board siding and it, there's a bunch of bare spots that need to be painted. I think we need to paint the whole house. They can take measurements and say, this is the size of the house. They can say, we have about 15 square feet of siding that's cracked or missing or, or whatever. And they make a note of that. And then they walk through the inside and they do the same thing on the inside. They fill out a form, a sheet, basically a checklist of all the things that need to be done. They measure each room. They tell you what kind of material that they recommend. So do they recommend carpet in that, in that room or do they recommend hardwood or tile? Um, they can make their recommendations. They hand you that list and now you have your scope of work. You have your line item list of things that need to be done. And it, once again, you can start applying labor and material cost. You can look at Home Depot for that city and say, okay, this is how much the materials cost. And then for the labor costs, worst case, you pick up the phone and you start calling contractors and you say, how much does this cost? If I, have you, if I need you to come out and replace my toilet, how much is that going to cost? If I call a carpenter and I say, I need you to replace cabinets in the kitchen, and it's about 17 feet worth of upper and lower cabinets, what do you charge for that? And they aren't going to give you an exact number, but they might say, yeah, it's about two days of work. I'm going to charge $600. So now you have a ballpark. This is great. You know, this is giving me so many ideas because what we teach our students is to have everybody on the ground, boots on the ground during the inspection. So yep. you have an inspector there, you yep. have your contractor there, and you have your agent there, and you have your property manager there. And your property manager is giving you input on what kind of upgrades you should make to maximize rents. Yep. Your contractor is walking around and seeing what needs to be fixed. You got your inspector doing the same thing. And then you've got your agent in there. Now I see that our agents, most of the time, they're just walking around talking or whatever. They're not actually doing a whole lot, but you could literally give them, you know, that spreadsheet, right? That's in your book, estimating rehab costs and have your agent measuring everything for you. Now you literally walk away as an out-of-state investor with your contractor and their scope of work, your inspection, which has all the things that need to be repaired that you can double check against your contractor's work. Your agent has now created the spreadsheet for you as well. And you got your property manager's insights. I mean, this just adds another level by making your agent do this work to even protect you even more. I think this is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly it's a little bit more expensive if you're going to have an inspector for every property, but absolutely, uh, that's the easiest way to go. I mean, if you bring in an inspector between pictures and an inspection, you probably have your scope of work. The pictures tell you, what you have to replace, not necessarily because they're not working, but because it's out of date or it's old or it just doesn't look good. And, and the inspection report is going to tell you all the things that have to be replaced because maybe there's double taps in the electrical box and there need to be electrical repairs. Maybe the plumbing is old and need to be replaced. Maybe something else, uh, maybe there's a leak that you can't see from the pictures. So the pictures are going to tell you the cosmetic stuff. The inspection report is going to tell you the functional stuff. And between the two, you have an idea of what needs to be done. And then like you said, a great place for your agent, what the agent should be doing anyway, is coming in and saying, okay, if you're going to remodel this house, I know that the best comps for this property, let's step back a little bit. 
And people say, how much is this house going to be worth renovated? And they expect that there's one number, but there's not one number. I can look at a house and I could do 10 different renovations that would cost different amounts and be a different level of effort that's going to result in, in 10 different resale prices for that property. If I put in granite or marble, obviously that house is likely to resell for more than if I put in uh, laminate countertops. If I put in hardwood and, and really upgraded tile flooring, that's going to probably resell for more than if I put in laminate roll flooring and, and carpet. If I put in high-end appliances, that property is going to sell for more than if I put in low-end appliances. So when a real estate agent says to you, you renovate this property, it's going to resell for $420,000, your first question should be, well, what do I need to do to get it to $420,000? Because I guarantee you, I could do a renovation where it wouldn't be worth four twenty, dollars And I could probably do a different renovation where it's worth a whole lot more than four twenty. dollars a real estate agent should be providing you two pieces of information. It's going to resell for this amount, assuming you do this work. Right. Some of our students do do single family homes, right? That they want to sell to primary residence buyers down the road. But a yep. lot of them are doing small multifamily. Yep. And your agent can really weigh in if they're an investor agent and they're working mostly with investors. They're going to be to weigh in with the finishes you want to do to that property that are in line with the neighborhood or, and are going to be able to maximize rents, but re- maximize resale value to the next investor as well. Absolutely. I did due diligence on an apartment complex that we're looking to buy last week. And we were walking through the units and about a third of the units were one bedroom and a den units. So you walk in, there's one full bedroom. And then there's another room that's kind of like a bedroom. It has egress. It has a full window that goes to the outside. It has a, an opening without the door. And then there's an opening to the kitchen with a little overhang uh, countertop. And my partners and I were looking at that saying, well, it would be really inexpensive. I mean, it would be about $250 to enclose this room and turn it into a full bedroom. Maybe a couple hundred more if we wanted to put a real closet in there. Mm-hmm. We can now call it a two bedroom as opposed to a one bedroom and a den. If somebody wants to use it as a den or an office, they still can. But right. now it's being marketed as a two bedroom for a couple hundred dollars, we're likely going to raise the value of that unit by two hundred to three hundred dollars a month. So, literally, insane yeah, th- on that. this renovation is going to pay for itself in two or three months. That's a no-brainer. And so, going in and having a really good real estate agent who says, "Hey, turn this room into this, or open up this wall, or close this wall, or add a couple extra cabinets there," or I know everybody around here has dogs, so, so create a little dog pen area in the back. I mean, all of these things are, are things that you wouldn't necessarily know if you don't know the area, but your agent can tell you that automatically increases the value of your property for very, very little money. Right. That's called hidden value. That's what we call hidden yeah. value. And we teach that a lot. Yeah. We get, uh, we get really excited about forced appreciation and <laughs> tapping hidden value for sure. Awesome. That, is, like, uh, that is a dream for scenario you. for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. Love I that. mean, everybody just has to remember the value of a multifamily property, of, of a cash flowing property is directly related to the amount of income it generates. So the only way to increase the value of, of that property, it doesn't matter how nice the finishes are, it doesn't matter all that matters is the, the, the revenue that that property is generating. And there's only two ways to change the revenue. You change the income or you change the expenses. Mm-hmm. So if you want that thing to be worth more, you increase the revenue, you decrease the expenses. So get more money and, and, and more efficient management. That's how you make money in this business. Yeah. So I just want to summarize some of these things because I know it was probably overwhelming for some people listening in the beginning. Yeah. So, you know, when you're first doing your cash and cash calculator, I think thinking through the method that you have, which is I think called the breakdown method, right? Where you're looking at different components, you're looking at the siding and the roof and know that, you know, 
coming in as a completely new investor, you're not going to know the actual numbers. You're going to have to guess really to put your cash in cash. And it's going to be rough. You're not going to have accurate information based on pictures. You're just not. But as you own multiple properties in that market yep. and you have properties that you rehab, you're going to get better and better and better at knowing. And part of getting better is calling those contractors like you described and checking in with multiple ones so that you have a sense of what the market is going to demand for those numbers. And over time, your initial cash and cash calculations will get better. It's just going to take time and checking with the experts, right? Is that reasonable? Yep. And And I started, I was just going to say, I started this conversation with you can't estimate based on per square foot. Um, Mm -hmm. That's not really true. It's certainly true when you first start. But if you're doing the same style of house in the same location with the same types of contractors, the same types of materials, the same, depending on where it is, relatively the same time of year, you really can do that. It requires you to be doing the same types of houses over and over. But if you're doing similar houses in the same area with similar contractors and similar finishes, then you absolutely can use per square foot. You're not going to be able to compare a 1990 build that's that's a two-story colonial to a 150-year-old uh, a ranch per square foot. But I, like in Atlanta, I did about 100 houses that were basically all built in the same five-year span. Um, they were the two-story townhouse-looking single-family houses and literally within $1,000 every rehab because the houses were the same age. So if one needed a roof, every one of them needed a new roof. If one of them had an outdated kitchen, everyone had an outdated kitchen. If one of them needed to be repainted on the outside, everyone needed to be repainted on the outside. So you will, if you're doing, and this is why I suggest to people, find an area that you're not just going to do one house. Find an area Mm -hmm. where it's possible that you're going to do five or 10 or 50 houses because after a few, you will start to see these commonalities. And at that point, yes, you you can make shortcuts and you can use things like per square foot pricing. So that's, I think, covers two really important concepts. Number one, focus, right? If you focus on one market, you focus on one area, you're focusing on one size multifamily, you will get really, really good and you'll develop this niche knowledge that will help you be a better investor. And then the second one is having a standard renovation kind of formula which saves you time, but also because you're doing the same formula over and over. I mean, every single one of our rental properties that we've renovated north of Seattle looks exactly the same, right? It's the same formula, saves us time, and are able to estimate our costs a lot better. Yep. And this gets into the uh, whole separate discussion, which is economies of scale and scalability and kind of putting your, your business on autopilot. And, and replication is one of the big ways of doing that. Uh, we learned early on um, the value of replication. My wife, who loves to do design, um, we used to in our first uh, few houses, every house had to be different. Different color schemes, different fixtures. Um, she wanted every house to be gorgeous and unique. And um, what we later realized was whether it was a rental or a flip, most likely nobody was going to see more than one of our houses. So they didn't care if every house was unique and gorgeous. What we realized is we could save a whole lot of time and a whole lot of money by replicating everything. We learned an important lesson the day we walked into a house and we got our color uh, numbers mixed up uh, between wall and trim and our painter, fantastic guy, but he was painting the trim purple, like a light purple. This was was an accent wall color, but we accidentally like uh, messed up numbers. And we put it under trim and he was like, okay, well, it says here to paint the trim purple. So I'm going to paint the trim purple. 
And so we're like, okay, this isn't working. After that, we said to him, every house is going to be this paint scheme. Mm -hmm. The walls are going to be this. The ceiling's going to be this. The trim's going to be this. The doors are going to be this. And you'll never have to ask us again or wonder if you're doing the right colors because we want this color scheme in every single house. And not only did it make our jobs easier, we didn't have to pick out paint colors. It made his job easier because he didn't have to wait for us to tell us, but also it made it cheaper because now he could go out and instead of buying 20 gallons for this job, he could go buy 300 gallons for the next 10 houses. Yep. Yep, that's exactly um, and so what we for do. each part of our business, we got very good at replicating, using the same materials, using the same contracts, doing the same level of renovation, using the same contractors, everything. Love that. So maybe this is a good time to talk about contractors yeah. uh, because I know a lot of out-of-state investors have fears. You know, how do I choose a good contractor? And what we advise people is it word of mouth, but I would be interested to hear if you have any other insights. So that is by far the best way. So if there's one thing I've learned in this business, it's funny, I started in 2008 and literally the easiest part of this business was contractors because 90% of them had gone out of business after during the downturn in 2008. The 10% that were left were the ones that were not just good contractors, but were good business people and good customer service people. Because if you weren't good at all three, business, contracting, and customer service, you weren't still in business. So, and they were, they were low priced because everybody needed work because there just wasn't a whole lot of real estate going on. So back in 2008, 9, 10, 11, contractors were really easy to work with. They all, I mean, I could say, hey, we're flipping 30 houses a year. If you do a good job on this one, you're going to get 29 more jobs this year. That was all the motivation they needed. Fast forward 12 years and I tell a contractor, hey, if you do a good job on this, I've got 30 more houses. They're like, I don't care. I can get 30 houses tomorrow. And they're going to pay a whole lot more than you will as an investor. And so these days, contractors are one of the most difficult parts of the job. But going back to finding a good contractor, one of the truisms I, I've learned in this business is that good contractors only hang around with other good contractors. Good tr- contractors recognize the value of reputation, and they're not going to do anything to call their reputation into question. If I find a good contractor and I say, hey, uh, let's say he's an electrician, is there a plumber that you know that you recommend? A good electrician will never recommend somebody that he is not 100% certain is a good plumber because if he recommends somebody and that person does a bad job, well, he's now hurt his own reputation. So basically what I tell people is your job is to find one great contractor. If you can find one great contractor, you say to him, who are the other great contractors you work with? And maybe he's only going to give you one or two names, but you can be guaranteed that those one or two people are other great contractors. And now you ask them, can you give me one or two people? And can they give me one or two people? And before you know it, you have a a network of great contractors. So all it takes is one really, really great contractor and you can build an entire network. Awesome. And now can we talk about uh, the paperwork uh, involved? Because you know, in your book, you talk about independent contractor agreements, getting a W-9, having a lien waiver in place. But we found that like in practice, you know, we we typically develop, you know, develop a relationship with a, a contractor, do multiple rental houses with them. And then it just feels like the, the paperwork gets cumbersome. Or when you actually talk to me, I've actually had this conversation with my contractor and he's just kind of like, well, it doesn't really feel necessary at this point. I mean, what would you recommend in terms of like paperwork uh, with contractors? Yes. So let me start with, yeah, paperwork is a, a pain in the butt. But I'll also add that, again, I love talking to you because I know your audience and I know your audience isn't the typical real estate investor. I come, again, from Silicon Valley, the tech world, and I'm used to 
um, when it comes to work, setting a really high bar. In the real estate world, the bar is set pretty low and most people don't even want to do the bare minimum. So I will say to, to your listeners who are probably the type to overachieve, this is one place where you should continue to overachieve. Doing paperwork is a pain in the butt, but it can be streamlined. You can reuse contract. So let, let me give an example. I use a contractor multiple times. I'm not going to do a brand new contract every time. I have a contract uh, that my attorney wrote up that's basically, it's a one-year term um, that basically lays out an independent contractor agreement between me and that contractor. Uh, it lays out all the terms and conditions of, of our relationship. And then for each job, we have a one or two pager, which is essentially the scope of work and the pay schedule. So when I find a contractor that I want to work with for the first time, he'll sign the independent contractor agreement. That's good for one year. And then for each job, it's literally just a one or two pager of here's the list of things you're going to do. Here's the cost for each line item or total cost. And here's what the payment schedule looks like. I'm going to give you 20% up front. I'm going to give you another 30% at 50% complete. I'm going to give you another 25% at three quarters complete. And I'm going to give you the rest at the end. And so a new project is, it's the same thing. You have, you, I mean, they have to create a scope of work and a price anyway. So it's basically just plugging that into this addendum that goes with the independent contractor agreement. And then once a year, because it is a one-year term, once a year, I'll have them sign a new independent contractor agreement. So that's not too bad. In terms of lien waivers, if I work with a contractor or contractors for a first time, I will typically get a lien waiver signed. After that, I typically will not. I know there are some, some investors who are 100% got to get a lien waiver every time. And for your listeners that don't know, a lien waiver is basically a document that says that your contractor signs that says, I've completed the work, I've been paid for the work, um, I now have no legal right to lien the property for lack of payment. Typically, I, I've not gotten burned on this over hundreds of deals when getting a lien waiver signed from a contractor the first time. Typically speaking, if you have a contractor agreement and you have a good trail of both other paperwork and checks that you've written, it's generally pretty easy to prove that a contractor has been paid. And depending on the state, in some states, there, there are pretty strict laws around contractors. They can get in trouble for trying to lien your property. They don't have a good case. What I will say, if you ever have to fire a contractor and you negotiate a final payment, so let's say he finishes half and it's not working out and you say, look, I'm going to give you half your payment. You're going to be done. I'm going to be done. We're going to go our separate ways. In those cases, absolutely get a lien waiver. But if a contractor finishes their job, typically you have enough evidence that if you had to go to court, you could substantiate the fact that they finished their job and you paid them as per the original agreement. That said, always get a W-9 at the beginning of a job. So a W-9 is basically a contractor's personal information their either social security number or their federal ID number, their address. And that's the document that at the end of the year, um, when you need to issue them what's called a 1099, and that's the tax form that says, I paid you this much throughout the year, so they go pay taxes. The W-9 is the, the form that they've signed that says, this is my name, this is my social security number, this is my address, so that you can send them their, their 1099. And at that point, basically the IRS says, okay, They've given you their information. They signed it. So as long as you send that information to that place, you're good. You're not on the hook for any taxes they don't pay. So uh, independent contractor agreement, scope of work document, W-9, sometimes a lien waiver. 
those are, those are the big four. Then I like to collect a copy of their insurance. If they have a license, I want to see a copy of their license. Typically speaking, I'm, especially the first time I work with contractors, I'm not just going to trust an insurance document or a license document. I'm going to verify that they're really licensed, that their license hasn't lapsed. And then for insurance, a lot of times what you can do is you can ask to be added to their insurance as what's referred to as an additional insured, which means they call their insurance company and they'll actually get you an insurance form that states their coverages and at the bottom will have your name and your address or your property address basically says that they have now informed their insurance company that they're working on a project for you. So if you have to file a claim or they have to file a claim, they can't really argue, yeah, I wasn't really working for him. Yeah. And it shouldn't cost them uh, any more to to add you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And it's the LLC that they would add, not you personally, right? Assuming you own the property under an LLC, then they would be adding the, the owner of the property, whoever they're contracting with. So presumably you own it under an LLC, then everything you're doing is the LLC. The contracts have the LLC name. You're writing checks from the LLC bank account. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, makes sense. So, uh, uh, Jay, really appreciate uh, your time on the sh- on the show here. Um, you know, we always close our show with uh, two questions. The first one is like, what is your definition of rich? So, I'm going to turn it around a little bit. So, I, I like to think of two different words: rich and wealthy. Um, rich to me is more financial; wealthy is more personal life satisfaction. So, if I had to define rich from a financial and money perspective. I think the day that I, and it's funny, we were just talking about this the other day with, with some friends. The day that I ever, I felt like I made it and I was quote unquote rich was the day I started going to restaurants and ordering without looking at the prices. So from a financial perspective, that to me is rich. That's a lot less important to me than the definition of wealthy, which is kind of that personal satisfaction. I, I feel like I have wealth in my family and my life. For me, the, the best definition of, of where that bar is, is my family being happy, comfortable, and secure. Knowing that, that my family doesn't have to worry about those things that I know so many families have to worry about. My wife and I both grew up like poor is probably the right word there. And just knowing that um, my kids aren't going to have to deal with some of those struggles that, that we had to deal with. That security and being able to go to bed knowing that everybody is secure is, is probably my, my best definition. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, that ties in with what you were saying in the beginning about you know, why you left corporate America and, and you said family first. And so yeah, you have very strong why. And, and yeah, I can see that in your, your definition of wealthy. So the next question is, uh, what is one mindset habit or strategy that separates someone who is rich versus someone who is poor? By far the one for me, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this and I won't be the last, but gratitude. In my experience, people who have gratitude and who think about and recognize how good their lives are, no matter how much you're struggling, there are good things in your life. And no matter how tough things might be right this minute, there are other people who are going through things that are much, much worse. And recognizing how fortunate we are, no matter how much we may be struggling, recognizing how fortunate we are and the good things can give us that mindset that really can keep us going and keep us from, from taking for granted what we have and from getting upset over what we don't have. None of us are ever going to have everything we want, and that's okay. We need to be happy for what we have, and, and, and no matter how little or how much that is, just having gratitude. Beautiful. I know Kenji has been practicing gratitude
it my does. happiness every day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really, it makes you, you, you don't think about, you. Could, we spend too much time thinking about all the things we want and all the things we don't have and looking at other people and saying, oh, they have that and I don't have that. And I mean, if, if we spend more time just thinking about the stuff that we have and, and how lucky we are and how fortunate we are. Um, and again, I'm not saying everybody is in, in the same position, um, but all of us have great things in our lives. No matter how much we're struggling, there's always great stuff there. Find it and think about it and, and appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. What a great way to end. Thank you so much, Jay, for your time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.